For me, it just means you don't want to win enough. Welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting to you here on The Big Talker, 106.7 FM, out of Wilmington, North Carolina, and Saga 960 AM, out of the Peel region in Ontario, Canada. I'm one half of your hosts, Yael Ososki, broadcasting to you from the mandated home studio in Vienna, Austria, looking out at the beautiful leaves and the cooler weather. Uh, that's feeling a lot better upon my neck. And I'm joined, as always, by my trusty colleague, David Clement, uh, who is uh, sweltering away in Ontario, right there in Toronto. David, how goes it? Good, sir. That's going well. Uh, a lot to chat about this week. Whew. It has been a doozy um, in regards to what is going on in the world of politics. Uh, but I know you had a, you had a couple couple stories you flagged so uh let's start uh, let's start with you what what you picked out for this week all right so let's um let's do a quick one um i know that you david have been quite busy on the internets um talking about vaccines yes i have so uh this is definitely not a controversial uh <laughs> topic for many people um but i one thing that i thought was interesting um, I don't follow much of the NFL season. Oh, yes. Uh, but I did think it was interesting that we had a debate amongst many players who you can argue are of very high physical stature, some of the most in-shape people. They're paid to work out. They're paid to look good. They're they're paid to be healthy. And we had this statement by the Tennessee Titans quarterback, Ryan Tannehill. So I wanted to play this and uh, get your take uh, very quickly. So let's uh, try this clip out. I wouldn't have gotten the vaccine if, uh, without the protocols that they're enforcing on us. Um, I think it's a personal decision for everyone. Everyone has to make the best decision for them and their families. That's kind of our mindset in this building. Um, but they're trying to force your hand, and they ultimately have forced a lot of hands by, by the protocols. You know, everyone has their own opinions on it. So uh, it is what it is. Uh, you know, I love this game. I love this team. I want to be able to compete and, and do the things that um, you know, I think are important to, to build chemistry and and win football games, so ultimately that that forced my hand into getting the vaccine. So that's uh, that's sort of his opinion, and I believe it was the Bills quarterback who uh, kind of went the next step and explained why I, I believe why he said he wouldn't take it. I think uh, it, yeah, one of the, I think it was their wide receiver. I mean, it, so the first thing is that it showed that their protocols work. So for those who maybe don't know what the NFL is doing, basically they said if your team has an outbreak linked to unvaccinated players or staff you lose um you forfeit games and when you only play 16 games a season um that could be a huge problem uh for any team trying to make the playoffs so uh it worked uh in terms of uh, of getting uh, suggesting that or or or, uh, nudging him to get the vaccine i still don't understand the hesitation i mean the 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 kind of like I'm healthy and I'm in shape and which obviously he is I mean he's a world class athlete, um, I mean that's great in terms of his own um, circumstances and the likelihood of uh, the virus being serious for him but his level of 
physical fitness has no bearing on whether he can give it to other people. Um, and we know that the rate in which vaccinated people have breakthrough cases, um, which is that which then creates a scenario where they can give it to other people, is so statistically low. I think it's it's point zero zero three uh, percent based on the CDC data. So it's it that part of the conversation is always missed when people are like, well, I'm healthy, I'm fine, I don't need it. It's like, that's true, or that could be true, but you're kind of missing the other half of the equation. Yeah, and what is what is more interesting about this and why I pulled it, because uh, I did know that part about forfeiting the games, uh, but we are seeing across many different industries, um, some different states and localities, uh, they are requiring that people have the vaccine in order to uh, participate, to work, uh, to do certain things. It's all a bit iffy still, I think, legally, because we still don't have the official approval, uh, and that is definitely a problem of the FDA. And uh, we talked about that last week a bit with uh, Bart Madden here on Consumer Choice Radio. You can go back and hear that on on the YouTubes. Uh, But it's this kind of thing where they're mandating something that is not yet approved, and in a way that gives a little bit of uh, leverage to the, I don't want to say the anti-vax crowd, but we'll say the uh, vax skeptical crowd, because they're saying, oh, well, it's not even approved. But what happens when it is approved in about a month? And as far as I understand, in Canada, it has been uh, authorized under Health Canada, uh, but just under an interim order. Yeah, I think think it's the equivalent of the emergency authorization, which, I mean, for the critics who are kind of saying, well, uh, I don't want to take the vaccine because it's not FDA approved. For the most part, I think people are saying that in, in bad faith. Um, that's, I, I agree. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're not all like. Yeah. this is not Matthew McConaughey. You know, we don't have like tons of uh, of guys taking you know unapproved uh, drugs for yeah. AIDS or something like that. It, it's something that has had I don't know what three hundred oh, million human. Uh, yeah, and I was uh, I was a guest on Counterpoint um, this week um, with Tanya Granick Allen, and I basically explained that like we're talking about the most robust data set ever compiled pretty much for anything in medicine and the the numbers show that this is this i think it's the second most effective vaccine ever created it's incredibly safe adverse side effects are incredibly rare um so i i I just don't understand there there is i mean I, i again i go back to um, another uh, Hall of Famer who weighed in on this, Charles Barkley, and I'm pretty sure he was like, look, uh, I mean, Michael Irving previously said, if you don't get the vaccine, you just don't want to win enough. Um, and then uh, I'm pretty sure Charles Barkley said something along the lines of those who don't get it are just knuckleheads, um, talking about athletes. And the Olympics kind of highlights the reason why it's so important because there have been several athletes right you train usually for four years now it's five because the the games were postponed to now for like the pinnacle of athletic achievement and you don't get the vaccine you test positive and you miss your event and it's like because you whatever your reason i mean maybe there were folks who had a medical exemption but i doubt that um because that's usually linked to other health problems um, and so it just, for me, it just means you don't want to win enough because you don't want, um, you don't want to ensure that you're not going to cause issues for your team or your own personal ability to compete in the sport that you, for 
North American sports, not the Olympics per se, but you get paid a lot of money to perform uh, at. So it's, I I don't like seeing the comments like from Tannehill where he's like, oh, I wouldn't have got it otherwise because I think that sends a bad signal. Um, But him saying that it forced his hand does also send the other signal to maybe policymakers or other private employers to say, ah, okay, well, obviously the <laughs> putting some incentive or disincentive here works. Yeah. I, I think I would still be opposed to um, broader mandates, particularly by, by governments, but by private organizations, it's, it's a bit of a different thing. Well, here's and like, question. even for us, like we're, it's not, <laughs> we see each other like, you know, a couple times a, a decade. So it's not, I don't think it'd be too, <laughs> too yeah, big of no, a problem, no. but I can understand for contact sports or, or something in the office every day. Yeah. Here's a question for you. What about nurses? This is a big story in Ontario. The Nurses Association is calling on the province to mandate it for healthcare workers. Um, I'll let you answer before I give you my take. Yeah, I've, I've seen this, and uh, I think um, in Texas there have been you know a couple of nurse associations. I'm more baffled. I'd like to understand a bit more why. Um, because the dancing, uh, the dancing nurses on TikTok told me to take the vaccine. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, that's you, rem- you remember all of this, but I that I don't understand. Is it just that there are, are many more um, vaccine skeptical nurses out there? Is it just that they don't like mandates? Is it that they think they can take care of their own care? Like I'm just a bit confused as to what's kind of happening there, because that's. It's it's a bit of cognitive dissonance to say trust the health experts. Not that nurses are experts necessarily, but they are you know the frontline workers. Yeah. yeah, they're the practitioners. So what is going on there? So I don't have a a strong opinion, but again, yeah. in in private healthcare systems, if they are to require that, I don't I don't see a problem. Bit different if you're talking about a public health system like Canada. Yeah. Though. So I mean, uh, for me, I think this is one of the ones where I'm like, yeah, I, I think this makes sense. Um, I mean, you're talking about the people who are most likely to be exposed to COVID. You're talking about the people who are um, who are working with people who are the most likely to be immunocompromised or have other issues um, in terms of the ability to fight off COVID. Like if you're in the cancer ward, I mean, the last thing you want is an outbreak um, caused by one of your unvaccinated staff. So... For healthcare workers, I get it. I, I, same, I go. I'm on the same page as you as to why, like, why is the vaccination rate not where it needs to be? Um, that strikes me as very odd, and it sends a really terrible message. Oh yeah, it's just fodder for people who are against it for any host of reasons, as you mentioned, and yeah. all of this stuff is never helped by the fact that the health authorities are continuously waffling and giving contradictory messaging. And different studies are brought up in the media, and no one has the right information. Like, even myself, as someone who reads a lot of stuff on this, I'm super confused. I can only imagine for someone who barely pays attention, who watches, you know, maybe one or two newscasts a week, like, what are they supposed to think? Well, either way. Yeah, and, I mean, this happened with the Provincetown research, and, like, you see it all over Twitter, people being like, well, vaccinated people can spread the virus, too. And it's like... Yeah, that's technically true, but it's less than a percent of all the vaccinated people who have a breakthrough case. Well, I'm just happy to to see here, David, that you're wearing your mask indoors on the Zoom. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so, David, we've got a, a couple of minutes here. We've got an interview yeah. coming up with Colin Graybow of the Cato Institute on the Jones Act and various cabotage laws. 
Uh, but I'll toss it to you here for our final couple of minutes. Uh, you, you came in with some stories. I know your folder's a bit thick, so uh, what you got for us? I mean, Michael, uh, Michael Cuomo, or uh, Governor Cuomo, um, that we got to talk about that. So for anyone who hasn't seen that, the, the Attorney General in New York issued a report and essentially confirmed that the allegations against him for sexual inappropriateness were accurate. And it's just so strange to see Cuomo, in a, in a way, I mean, he's certainly a more polite version, but in a way kind of behave like Trump, where he's like, well, I got my attorney to create our own report, and it disagrees, and uh, this is the truth. And it's like, I don't know, bud. <laughs> it seems like you're a bit of a creep, and you got caught. Um, and you got, not only did you get caught being a creep, you got caught being a huge hypocrite. Um, because he was a very loud, outspoken supporter of the Me Too movement, and now he is um, within the Me Too movement, given his his uh, behavior. So, um, not a great day for him. I mean, I don't really, I don't really feel sorry for him in any way. Um, <laughs> he's he's, despite the original fanfare about him, there are a lot of things he's done in COVID unrelated to this. Um, series of allegations that I think are worthy of him not being the governor of New York anymore. Like, oh yeah, atrocious. Yeah. Um, if so, I were to if I were to make a prediction though, so he got elected last in 2018 for your term. I still think he'll ride it out. Uh, I mean, I think he could be impeached. Uncle Joe just weighed in, weighed in here, and he said that he should resign. Um, so I mean, that's the top of Democratic leadership saying you got to go. The progressives want him to go. The Republicans want him to go. Um, is he going to go? No, I don't think so. I think he's going to behave more like Trump than um, than others might expect. But he could be impeached. I don't know what that looks like at the state level. Um, yeah. But and then, I mean, in the last minute here, we also have the issue of his brother Andrew Cuomo oh. be being included in all of like the internal discussions on like how to respond and how to deal with the media. Which is, I mean, pretty problematic considering he is um, one of the most popular anchors in the U.S. I mean, he's regularly interviewed his brother, which yeah. before this I thought was incredibly inappropriate. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's tough, interesting times for him. We'll see where this goes. Um, but, uh, yeah, let's kick it over to the interview. Yep, let's go to Colin Graybell of the Cato Institute uh, for segment two. Stay with us on Consumer Choice Radio. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting here on The Big Talker, 106.7 FM and Saga 960 AM in the Peel region. Ontario, Canada. We're speaking with Colin Graybow. He is the policy analyst at the Cato Institute's Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies, where his research focuses on domestic forms of trade protectionism, including things like the Jones Act, which we'll be discussing today, and the U.S. Sugar Program, which uh, you know might make its, its appearance in here. Colin, thanks so much for taking the time. Hey, thanks for having me on the program. So there's a lot of things to, to discuss. It's been a, you know an eventful couple of months for many of us who've gotten out of the pandemic and are traveling more. And many people who are getting on cruise liners or maybe getting on ships for the first time, there's actually an entire field of law underneath them uh, that actually artificially increases the prices 
of those trips they take or perhaps of ships in general. Uh, you're obviously an expert in this area. What is the Jones Act and how does it impact normal people who use things like shipping or people who are impacted by shipping? So the Jones Act is the colloquial name for Section 27 of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920. Uh, the law says that essentially to transport goods from one part of the United States to another uh, by water, the vessel carrying has to meet four conditions. That is, the vessel has to be U.S. flagged and registered. So just like you, know, you register your car in a certain state, you have to register your vessel in the United States. Uh, it has to be at least 75% U.S. owned by American citizens. It has to be at least 75% crewed by American citizens. And it has to be built in the United States. Uh, that's a very unusual requirement. Uh, this is, as you mentioned, this is this is a cabotage law. It governs uh, transportation, and we have other cabotage laws as well. There are restrictions on foreign airlines and what they can do. For example, you can't take a foreign airline between two U.S. cities, but what you can do is use a foreign-built airplane. But when it comes to, and of course, you can use foreign-built trucks, foreign-built pretty much anything except if it floats. For some reason, we've decided that it has to be built here in the United States. And unfortunately, Americans are not very efficient. Uh, shipbuilders for commercial ships. A U.S. built ship is estimated to be anywhere from four to five times more expensive than one built in another country. So instead of paying, say, you know, $50 million for a ship, you're paying $200, $250 million for that ship. That adds up. That means, you know, that's all passed along to consumers. It means that it's reduced competition because expensive ships are a barrier to entry. It's hard to get that kind of money together. Uh, to enter the market. So we have reduced competition. We have very costly ships. And that's a formula for high prices. Basically, ultimately, the Jones Act, what it does is it makes it more expensive for Americans to transport goods within the United States. And as you know, the United States is a huge country. This is a country that stretches, you know, from Maine to, to Hawaii, from Puerto Rico to Alaska. Um, distance is a barrier to trade and having cheap, efficient transport is key to overcoming that barrier. So essentially the Jones Act makes it more difficult for Americans to trade and do business with each other. And that drives up the cost of everything. Of course, everything we use almost you know, is subject to transportation costs. It had to get to you somehow. And the Jones Act uh, increases the price of you know, everything we, that we buy. And I, I caught you on the Cato Daily podcast uh, and there you were talking about uh, the president's executive order and uh, some parts of uh, Joe Biden's administration's sort of plan on all things related to uh, competition, to regulation, to transportation. And uh, you're saying that he actually wants more control over shipping of goods. I know we had heard from the administration that they wanted to remove barriers uh, to shipping goods, uh, but you seem to make the case that uh, a lot of the restrictions that are still there will only get worse, and many of it will be counterproductive to those ends. So what's interesting is that, uh, yes, recently the Biden administration said that uh, it wants to promote more competition within with the United States, uh, which is a great thing. I'm, I'm for that. I'm sure you are as well. Uh, and, and they even brought up the issue of ocean shipping, um, but they only did it in an international context. Basically, they were trying to uh, regulate and crack down uh, on foreign flag carriers, the people that, you know, transport our U.S. exports and U.S. imports that bring things from other countries to our shores, so, you know, transport U.S. goods abroad. And they were concerned about a lack of competition and prices being too high. Well, what's interesting here is that, you know, this being an international arena, the United States has fairly limited influence over this. 
but we have a tremendous amount of influence over is what is the shipping that happens uh, with uh, in our in our in our waters, you know, between U.S. ports, domestic shipping. That's something we control. And yet the Biden administration was totally silent on this, which we call, you know, this is the Jones Act market. These are these are shipping lanes controlled uh, subject to the Jones Act. The administration was silent about the Jones Act in its executive order. And in fact, not only that, they've been actually very supportive of the Jones Act. Uh, President Biden only a few days into office uh, reiterated his support for it. He campaigned on it. And when Transportation Secretary uh, Pete Buttigieg was being confirmed, he reiterated, uh, he stated his support for the Jones Act. So unfortunately, we're in a situation where the administration wants to, they want more competition, where we have very little control, and then where they have a lot more influence, they are totally silent and actually on the wrong side of this issue. So for the, the Democratic establishment, is, uh, is this just a, a case of their siding with various interests? Is it a particular lobby group? Is it a you know some kind of pressure group that has just sway on this? Does it have to do with a, a sort of anti-foreigner, a more xenophobic approach? Why do you think that particularly a Democratic administration, and, and again, there's no difference, it seems, with the Republican administrations in the past, but why Democrats specifically, who are supposed to be seen as the more sort of global, uh, a tad bit more free trade in the, in the old neoliberal sense, why is it that they are not in favor of, of trying to perhaps amend or reform the Jones Act? Well, um, you know, as you mentioned, there is no, there are no good guys and bad guys here along uh, partisan lines. Uh, you can find guilty parties on both sides of the aisle and, and actually people that are trying to reform the law or favor making changes also on both sides of the aisle. Uh, the Biden administration, I think that their support can be largely explained by the fact that they are uh, very much a pro-union administration. They, I think, take their lead on a lot of issues from where are guided by where unions stand and unions favor the Jones Act. Uh, the ships that operate under the Jones Act, um, the 96 ships, the subject of the Jones Act that operate in the United States are uh, these unionized labor. And those guys don't wanna compete against uh, foreign labor. Uh, you know, they don't want more competition. So I think that's the lens that the Biden administration views it from. Uh, but I will point out that uh, uh, Representative Ed Case of Hawaii, who is a Democrat, he is very much in favor of, of reforms to the Jones Act and has actually introduced legislation uh, to 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 alter the, the law and exempt Hawaii and, and, and some of the Alaska non-contiguous places that are, bear the burden the most from this law. And I also just point out that actually last week, uh, Guam's Democratic representative uh, testified, um, spoke during a, a hearing of the House Rules Committee, and it was all about hunger. And, and he said, hey, we want to reduce hunger in Guam. You should exempt us from the Jones Act so we can get food to, to Guam cheaper so people aren't paying out the nose for the food they have to eat. So again, you can find uh, supporters and, and opponents on, on both sides of the aisle. You're listening to Consumer Choice Radio. We're speaking with Colin Graybow. He's a policy analyst at the Cato Institute's Hebert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies. Colin, another thing that uh, you mentioned sort of, you know, there's new legislation. I know that Senator Mike Lee has also been fairly active. Um, there's a bill that I caught that apparently has been introduced oh many times, uh, the Open America's Waters Act. So there are, it seems, a couple of politicians who are brave enough to take a stand in this fight. What is sort of uh, leading their charge? Are they looking at this more from an economic perspective? Uh, because as far as I know, something like Utah for, for Senator Mike Lee, as far as I know, you know, this is not impacting him too much uh, necessarily in Utah or his constituents. Is this a, a broader economic argument they're making? Is it more about uh, perhaps what the representative from Guam is saying? 
that it's about people's livelihood and an ability to have food. Because I know that in Hawaii, if anyone's ever been there, stuff is expensive. <laughs> it ain't cheap. Uh, so what is behind sort of the newer political push by some of these politicians? So you're right. We, we've seen uh, legislation along these lines uh, introduced several times before, currently by Representative Mike Lee, as well as uh, Representative Tom McClintock and on the House side. Uh, before Mike Lee, uh, Senator John McCain uh, was a leading champion of Jones Act repeal and, and getting rid of this law. And you'll note he's also from a landlocked state. Uh, I think that both of them uh, actually had, uh, I was able to do a podcast recently with Senator Mike Lee, and he was asked about this, and he said basically he learned about it and just thought it was a very bad law. And I think that also motivated uh, Senator John McCain as well. It's a law that produces high costs, uh, few benefits, doesn't make a lot of sense. And something I'll point out here that's interesting is I think a lot of people assume, if, if they're not very familiar with the law, that probably what happens is the representatives from Alaska and Hawaii show up in Congress and say, guys, we got this law. It's really killing us. Can we do something about it? And the rest of the 48 states say, you know, that's not really a priority. But what's interesting is that, in fact, the congressional delegations largely, with the exception of Ed Case of Hawaii, are all for the Jones Act. And while the people leading the charge are, again, from these landlocked states with no maritime interests. But that explains why we see this dynamic is because states that are most subject to the Jones Act or bear the, the cost of it the most uh, are also disproportionately home to maritime special interest groups that very much want to see this law in place and that, and that are getting rich off of it. Uh, so, you know, it's an interesting dynamic that kind of speaks to some of the dysfunction we see in D.C. on, on a broader basis. I want to uh, point our listeners uh, over to a book that you had published and that you've edited, The Case Against the Jones Act uh, by Colin Graybow and Inu Manek. Uh, this is from June 2020. And you, you share a good number of essays and arguments and Man, a lot of acronyms and <laughs> and charts uh, about the different cost of this. And what I do like is that you have some examples of countries where uh, they don't necessarily have this restrictive of a law uh, when it comes to shipping, when it comes to ship building. What are some other examples of places that perhaps do it a little bit better? Um, is there a country that is just the gold standard that we should really try to strive towards? Or are there other countries that are perhaps a step or two ahead uh, where their consumers are faring a bit better? Well, pretty much every country has a superior cabotage law to us. In fact, in, I believe, 2013 or so, the World Economic Forum, uh, based in Davos, released a report, and they said the Jones Act was the world's most restrictive example of a cabotage law. Uh, I think largely, in fact, uh, due to the U.S. built requirement, uh, country in the world that mandates all vessels have to be domestically built. We're the only ones that do that. I want to say of all countries that have some form of that requirement, there may be like five in the entire world. And these are small, these are not maritime powers. It's countries like I believe Peru and Indonesia uh, that have these kinds of, of laws and then the United States. Uh, so pretty much any other cabotage law would be an improvement, but just single out a few, um, Canada, which you're familiar with, uh, they have cabotage laws, but they also have uh, provisions that if say you wanna send something from Montreal to Vancouver, and you look around and say, there are no Canadian flag vessels available. I'm willing uh, to use one. I just can't find one. You can apply to the Canadian government for a waiver to use a foreign flag vessel in those instances where there's just no Canadian vessel uh, available. But here in the United States, we don't have anything like that. Um, and, and that's a real problem because, say, if you want to ship liquefied natural gas to Puerto Rico or send it to Boston, which doesn't have enough pipeline capacity, 
there are no LNG carriers in the Jones Act fleet. So you can't, you can't send it there. You can send US LNG to every country in the world, except you can't send it to other parts of the United States. It's an absolutely crazy situation. And it's not just LNG, you find other products where this dynamic occurs. So, um, you know, getting rid of that US built requirement, which almost no other country has, would be a huge step forward. Having a waiver system like Canada has to be a huge step forward. Uh, New Zealand, for example, they say foreign ships, they can come in and they can do one cabotage movement. Say they can take something from the North Island to the South Island and then they have to go off and do something else. But you know, they're, 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 uh, they have some ability to do domestic movement. And after that happened, in fact, New Zealand saw the cost of its maritime transport, I think drop around 20, 25%. So there, there are lots of options that, and, and lots of models to follow. So there's gonna be plenty more to come from Colin Graybell. Uh, we're gonna just get ready for our break here on Consumer Choice Radio. There's a lot of questions that have been brought up in the context of this interview. Uh, I want to ask him a little bit more about travel and uh, specifically air travel. And if we were to allow foreign airlines to travel domestically throughout the U.S. and, and even throughout Canada, what that would look like and what that would mean for prices, what it would mean for you as the average consumer. Uh, these are important questions. That's why we're here to try to answer these questions on Consumer Choice Radio and to really try to bring additional perspectives that you would not normally hear when it comes to these big questions of public policy. Uh, so obviously some great insight there from Colin Graybow. We've got plenty more to come on this program. Uh, we'll come back for the next segment uh, with Colin coming up. So uh, stay tuned to your radio here on Consumer Choice Radio, uh, broadcasting throughout North America. And uh, we'll be right back after this break. All right, so part two of our conversation with Colin Graybow coming up here, and uh, let's let's toss him a good question. How about that? And I know, I know you focus specifically on sort of the maritime industry and the various uh, facts and figures there, uh, but as someone who has uh, traveled back and forth between the U.S. and Europe and been around, uh, one thing that I always find interesting is generally with the cabotage laws, and I, I know that there is a distinct difference between Jones Act and the general cabotage laws, and you can speak to that. Uh, but I'm always fascinated by, in, in many other countries, just how much cheaper it is to, to kind of travel around and airlines. And a lot of the cabotage laws, I, I would assume it's you know piles upon piles of laws. Are there just a couple that you could point out that make it so that we can't have something like Ryanair go between New York and Miami? Is there some? Is there a law that we can target, something to look at? Because that's an advantage that anyone who's ever been to the European continent and can hop on a Wizz Air flight, you know, for something that's very cheap or Ryanair, that's a great advantage. Is the reason that we don't have it because of various cabotage laws in the U.S.? Uh, do you think there are other kind of protectionist elements at bay? What What is kind of happening there? Absolutely. Uh, we do have cabotage restrictions on airlines. As you mentioned, I'm actually speaking to you from Spain right now. I can, if I want to, you can take Ryanair, which is an Irish flagged carrier, and you can take a flight from Barcelona to Seville. Uh, no problem. And uh, it's it's created a whole, uh, it's been amazing for tourism here. There are people that will live in the UK and will jet off to Europe for the weekend. You know, it's been a long weekend because it's just that cheap. It's It's doable. Uh, and it shows the possibilities that can be unlocked when you pair these kinds of restrictions back. And 
U.S. So obviously we have restrictions on airline cabotage, and then we have the Jones Act that applies to the transportation of goods between two U.S. ports. We also have something called the Passenger Vessel Services Act of 1886, which applies to the transportation of people within the United States. So this is basically the law that governs cruise ships, for example. This is a particularly crazy law, given that we have almost, in terms of large ocean-going cruise ships, the kind of thing that you, most people think have in their mind when they think of cruise ships, there's one in the entire country. There's one U.S. flag cruise ship. It operates in Hawaii among the Hawaiian Islands. Uh, so, you know, we have this absurd situation uh, earlier this year where cruise ships that want to go from Seattle to Alaska couldn't do it because Canada closed their ports. And to get around this law, you have to visit a foreign port at some point. Well, these foreign ships operating out of Seattle, they had no foreign port to stop at because Canada closed all their ports due to COVID concerns. So Americans could not go from Seattle to Alaska and visit Alaska because there was no foreign port. All this law does is divert traffic to Canada. Canada loves this law. It's, you know, they're, they're getting more tourist dollars uh, out of it. And then we also have the, the Foreign Dredge Act that says if you want to dredge U.S. harbors and help improve our waterways, uh, you have to, again, be American built, American flagged, all the rest. And your European ships uh, providers could do it at vastly lower costs, but we, we force them out of the market. They're not allowed to operate here. So, yeah, these things are pernicious. And you find examples just all over the place. Again, we're speaking with Colin Graybow, a policy analyst at the Cato Institute here on Consumer Choice Radio. Um, Colin, I will point uh, our listeners over to your Twitter page as well. It is at C-P-G-R-A-B-O-W. And I, I, uh, I want to kind of bring up a, a kind of parallel because a lot of economists who focus on the economy, uh, whenever there's any topic that's brought up in the news, you know, they always point to inflation as this big topic. You know, it's inflation that's all-encompassing. It touches every matter of policy. Uh, sort of looking at your page, you're able to actually bring up examples where things like the Jones Act and cabotage laws actually do impact so many different sectors of the economy and do impact our lives. And we're, we're not even really thinking about it, nor are we aware. Are there some good examples, perhaps, that uh, you've kind of followed in the, in the recent weeks? I, I know there's, there's plenty of stuff that comes across your desk, but I have to Im imagine some of them are pretty atrocious. Yeah, I, the you're right. The Jones Act, again, it restricts competition. I mean, if you want to beat inflation, you need to expand supply. You need to have uh, more supply out there, more competition. The Jones Act keeps out competition, keeps down supply, you know, keeps makes the supply of ships, for example, artificially low. Um, so that drives up costs. And, you know, it's worth asking, okay, Colin, you've been talking about Jones Act driving up costs. How much are we talking about here? Um, in 2012, I believe the Federal Reserve Bank of New York did a study at, about Puerto Rico, and they said to ship a container of household and commercial items from the East Coast down to San Juan cost about $3,000 for a container. That same container, if you ship it to Jamaica or Dominican Republic right next door, is about half that, about $1,500. Um, you find examples where sending a barrel of oil from Texas to a refinery in the Mid-Atlantic uh, it would cost two to three times more than seeing that same barrel of oil and even greater distance up to refinery in Canada. Uh, so we, we find these significant increases in, in the cost of transportation. Again, transportation touches everything. So we're all going to end up paying the piper. We're all going to pay the, the cost for that. And we, we wouldn't obviously speak about global shipping and global dominance and the, uh, the seas if we didn't talk about China. And in a lot of this, we kind of have to wonder... Is China sort of benefiting from this? Is there an angle whereby we could actually make the argument that uh, the Jones Act and similar 
protectionist uh, legislation that exists is actually helping uh, the Chinese government? Is there something that has perhaps has changed in the last few decades now that China is a huge market and a lot of our shipping containers are headed there before they head back? Is there some argument to be made there? Well, I think when I think of China and the Jones Act, I have to think that Beijing uh, can't believe their luck and the fact the Americans have this law. If I was Chinese and I viewed the Americans as uh, an enemy or an opponent, uh, one thing I wanted to hold back their maritime industry, one thing I'd want to do is get together with every other country and say, guys, don't sell any ships to the Americans. Let's put an embargo on them. Well, they don't have to lift a finger because we've already done that to ourselves. We've said you cannot buy foreign built ships, we've essentially placed an embargo on ourselves. And it's interesting because embargoes are what we use to punish other countries. We say, we're not gonna sell our goods to you and we're embargoing ourselves. Uh, so, you know, it doesn't take a math genius to figure out when you pay four to five times more for a ship than otherwise would be the case, you're gonna get fewer ships. And it seems to me that if we're involved in some kind of conflict uh, with China, be it military or commercial, more ships is better than fewer ships. Uh, it, it seems to me that um, ha driving up the cost of maintaining our waterways through the Foreign Dredge Act, you know, that, that's just shooting ourselves in the foot. I don't know, you know, it seems that plays to China's advantage. And kind of the kicker to this whole thing is that when you drive up the cost of buying new ships, well, people hold on to their existing ships for longer. Internationally, a ship, you know, their useful life is anywhere from 15 to 25 years. The Jones Act trade, you know, the, usually about 40 years, 40 plus is the, the useful life of the ship because they're so expensive to go out and buy new ones. We have older ships, older ships need more maintenance. And where do these ships go to get maintenance? A lot of them go over to China to get maintenance. So we have older ships need more maintenance and we send them to China to get repaired. So China's, you know, actually profiting off of this because, you know, if the ships weren't so old, they wouldn't need so much repair. They would be visiting Chinese shipyards less often. It's absolutely crazy. And these same people, that support the Jones Act that operate these ships will tell you with a straight face, oh, the Jones Act is essential to confronting China. Really? Then why are you sending your ships there for repair? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Well, if you guys need to know who to talk to at the bar when you're on your next uh, cruise and want to talk about the Jones Act and how it's artificially uh, inflating many prices uh, of many goods and, and actually a very protectionist piece of legislation, uh, our guy Colin Graybow is the guy to talk to, a policy analyst at the Cato Institute's Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies. Colin, thanks so much for coming on Consumer Choice Radio. Keep up the great work and uh, hope we can continue to follow what you're doing. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And what a great interview with Colin Graybow. You can follow all of his work. We'll link to that in the show notes. But we're back here on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, David, my host, co-host and colleague, is right here now. And uh, David, you uh, sent me a link for a political advertisement by a union in Canada. And uh, I think this speaks to some of the stuff we talked to in the first segment. And you wanted to kind of unveil that for the listeners. Yeah, so Unifor, the largest union in um, in Canada, uh, release an attack ad, overtly partisan attack ad, which is their right, um, against the Conservative Party in the lead-up to what we assume will be an election very soon, um, essentially saying the, the, the same old talking points they always have about the Conservatives, that they're going to cut health care, ruin the economy, etc., etc. Um, but for me, the weird aspect here, or the, the possible 
uh, I don't know if I would call it conflict of interest, but certainly makes me uncomfortable, is that Unifor is the union for many, um, if not a majority, of journalists in Canada. And so here we have journalists tasked with covering the election that is most likely uh, to occur soon, um, while their union is pumping out partisan ads telling people not to vote conservative. Um, and it's, it, I mean, it could be called a conflict of interest, and we could talk about like the, the morality of that or however you want to describe it, but I think the bigger impact here is that it just fundamentally taints how consumers perceive the biases of, um, of, of journalists, and it just further adds fuel to the existing discomfort that many people have, both on the left and the right, with how the media covers things. Uh, and so it's certainly going to make that polarization much much worse, um, mm. and that I that by and I'm not it isn't to suggest that Unifor shouldn't be able to s- send these attack ads and or and it shouldn't I, I certainly wouldn't say that uh, journalists shouldn't be able to join a union, but it's a weird circumstance where you have you will have people on the campaign trail covering the conservatives writing maybe positive but maybe negative things about them um while their union is is also spending a lot of money to 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 push out negative ads and so um yeah really uncomfortable really uncomfortable i don't know what your take is you've been in that world in in the formal journalist world before um so i'm interested to hear if you have a a separate view. Yeah, and I've also covered uh, some of the labor battles, um, specifically in uh, Michigan and Wisconsin um, during the time. If you remember the Wisconsin situation that was getting rid of Governor Scott Walker at the time, uh, he had passed a bill called Act 10 that had everything to do with uh, whether the unions basically were able to collect those dues automatically or if uh, workers were allowed to have a choice. That has now been settled by the Supreme Court uh, by a fellow named Janice, uh, who brought that up. I actually met him once. Interesting. Uh, it, it's really strange, you know, to have this because it is true when you think about it. And there are a lot of unions uh, that, you know, will lobby on specific things. And the fact that they do political sort of lobbying is expected. When you really look into it, it's it's rather crazy to think that you'll have public servants that will have their own union that are lobbying the government to have x or y which always seems really problematic (laughs) you know or and that's that's how a lot of the court cases at least in the u.s have been settled with this is is that if you are a member of this union you know you don't have a say necessarily in the political stances they'll take and they might be very different from your own personal politics and and your own you know worldview so in that case what do you kind of do so yeah, I think yeah. I think talking about it and exposing it, you know, are the do the journalists who are part of this union agree with that message? I mean, probably, <laughs> you know, but not because they're a part of the union, just because they're part of that you know sort of media ecosystem. Yeah, but I mean, it's like, do you do you have to add disclaimers on negative coverage? So if you're a journalist for the Star and you write a negative story about Aaron O'Toole, should it say? Person X is uh, is a member of Unifor, who has spent X millions of dollars pushing out anti-conservative ads. It's, I mean, I I don't know if I really like that as a solution, but at the same time, it's like, 
I don't know. It just leaves me really uncomfortable. And I, it's just, I, like I said, it's going to just further the distrust that people have both sides of the political aisle um, with the media establishment, which is not great. Uh, and it's, it's Yeah, and it's especially not great in a pandemic when we're no. supposed to be getting our information from news services. People start doubting them and, you know, God forbid we have another political race. And, and as we can see in Canada, <laughs> this truck ad is already, uh, you know, pulling its punch there. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, th- I think that's interesting. Uh, you know, the labor stuff is something that we don't always touch as a consumer group. Um, but I think overall we've been covering a lot of topics today, David. It's been a, it's been a great program. Um, if you did not uh, hear Colin Graybell's uh, interview before, we did put that up on our YouTube page, which we'll link to. Um, so, David, uh, great show, and uh, look forward to talking to you next week. I know you'll, you'll bring more topics. We'll have some clips, and we'll dissect it all. Yep, yeah. Until next week, we'll talk to you soon. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Ososki and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy, and science. Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on consumerchoiceradio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Consumer C Radio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram, just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening.
the United States of America.